If you could see our pain Why would you wanna break us all the way? Take our rights from us, take them all away But even still, we gon' make it all the way This the making of the band Welcome to the Hearts in Taiwan podcast, where we explore and celebrate our connections to Taiwan. I'm Annie. And I'm Angela. And every episode, we unpack an aspect of our heritage and experiences that have shaped our identity. We're looking at the time period when our parents lived in Taiwan and its influence on Taiwanese identity today. This is part two of our two-part series on 228 and white terror. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and listen to that before listening to this. So we just finished part one, where we talked about martial law, the the period of white terror in uh, that ended in 1987. And the whole goal of installing martial law was to control what the people could talk about and ultimately what the people of Taiwan were aware of. So we talked about 228 because it was the information was fairly accessible to us by doing internet research in order to know what happened in the 228 incident in 1947. But during martial law, it was really not talked about. It was not safe to talk about it. The government of Taiwan actually did not even acknowledge that 228 happened until 1995. If a government ignores and denies that a terrible thing has happened and they control the education and they control what's what's allowed, what's legal to speak about, they can pretty much erase history. And this is not just the KMT government. We've actually seen this. This is a pattern that I'm starting to see. It's kind of like a playbook that governments use to erase history, because if you erase a terrible thing that the government has done, then you eliminate the outrage that people will have in criticizing the government and or overthrowing the government. Basically, the government will try to label the incident, um, often labeling it as a riot where people are acting inappropriately, probably violently. And so, you know, the government had no choice but to control it in, for everybody's safety. Number two, control the education. So eliminate, talk about it from the curriculum. And so as long as kids never learn about it, they will not carry that forward to the conversations that they have or the the way that they vote or think about government in the future. Third, installing martial law so that you as a government have freedom to basically do whatever punishment you want to people in order to um, instill that fear and limit what they can talk about so that then you can control the narratives. And I should probably put in here, like control the media. And then all of this is really helped if you have a single party government. We've seen that in that period of white terror, where it doesn't even need to be communism. It, it could be a, a fake democracy, but where there's only really one candidate that you can choose from. And so if you have no opposition, because you've killed off all the opposition, then you effectively have no challenge to your control of the education and the media, and even people's conversations. So this is not just isolated to Taiwan in the 20th century. 
This also has happened in other places. One example is this is June 2021, and it's 100 years after the Tulsa Race Massacre. Oklahoma is a very red state, which is Republican state. Um, so even though America the country is a democracy and has a two-party system, in Oklahoma, it's always been and will deeply be overwhelmingly one party. So they have pretty solid control over the laws that are passed in Oklahoma. But 100 years ago, there was an incident where one small interaction activated a large number of people. Um, in this case, it was an accusation that a Black man did something to a white woman. And so then a white mob formed um, and took that as a reason to attack a large Black community. And this Black community in Tulsa was exceptional because coming from hundreds of years of slavery, Black people in America had very little economic success because they had spent so much time not earning any money and giving all of their labor to white people. But against all odds, this community called Greenwood in Tulsa became known as Black Wall Street because it was 35 blocks of successful, thriving Black-owned businesses serving Black people, building Black wealth, and basically creating a very thriving community, which was the exception to the rest of the country, where Black people suffered from poverty and lack of opportunity. And so the white population in Tulsa living outside of this community, they were not happy with seeing Black people being successful. They took this incident as a reason to then go and completely decimate that black community. I say it's a white mob because they were armed. They came in mass and they went into the black community and they attacked everyone. Not only was it just like man-to-man -man combat, but the government was involved because they actually sent in the National Guard and bombed these blocks from overhead. This was over 10,000 people in the community that were now displaced that mob killed hundreds of people. So this, this was a really big incident, and the government was complicit in it. The Oklahoma government has not taught this in schools. Like, they actually covered it up, and it wasn't until 80 years later, in 2001, that they formed a commission to investigate it. And then even after they, like, acknowledged it and did something formal, like form a commission, they didn't add it to textbooks until 1995. So it really was, like, optional to teach. Even now, a hundred years later, the Oklahoma government is still trying to pass laws to allow teachers to get out of teaching it. So keep it optional. And basically, they, they made a law that made it actually even harder to teach it because they introduced this bill that said, well, we don't want to teach anything that can make a child feel guilty or make, make them feel bad about themselves because of their race. Like, i.e., don't make white kids feel guilty because of something that white people did 100 years ago. What? Are you serious? Yeah, th this is completely contrary to everything that we've been thinking about over the past few years of anti-racism, accountability, and facing up to 
wrongs that have been done in the past and recognizing that when you see somebody today that is disadvantaged, it's not just because of their personal circumstances and opportunities today, but it's over generations, the cause of many generations of institutional systemic racism that have not only depressed their opportunities, but their parents' opportunities and before that and before that. That's how sneaky governments can be. That's some of the the rationale that you might see when a government is trying to control education and eliminate things from the curriculum. Another example is like, so I was talking about something that was 100 years ago, but in our lifetimes, the Tiananmen Square massacre I remember it being very prominent in American media and um, especially like this, the very iconic image of um, they call him tank man. There's just this guy like holding grocery bags unarmed and just standing there and like the, a, a row of tanks rolling up to him. Like, what are they going to do? Are they going to like literally run over a person? Like, why do they need to bring in such heavy military to come up against a peaceful protest? First of all, the the Tulsa race massacre until very recently was called the Tulsa race riot. So when you hear a race riot, who do you think is being um, rowdy? The the people that are doing the quote unquote rioting, like they're causing trouble. They're yeah. they're making problems, and so therefore, oh well, that's the duty of law enforcement, military to come in and shut it down. To, yeah. for the safety of everybody. That is how important labeling is. So mm-hmm. it was not a riot. There were no black people rioting in the streets. It was the white people, the oppressors, who were um, who were going and, and killing black people. Mm-hmm. So that's one where the label riot versus massacre, massacre is very important. Yep. Very important to honor the truth, mm-hmm. to rename that. The, ma- the Tulsa race massacre. I thought that Tiananmen Square was going to be very well known and just like a core aspect of recent Chinese history. First of all, in China, they call it the June 4th incident, just like they call 228 the uh, 228 mm-hmm. incident. Mm-hmm. Um, and so incident really minimizes what happened. In China, it's a communist government. There were protesters that wanted democracy. The government response, the communist government response to these protesters asking for democracy was to bring in heavy heavy military and kill the protesters. And they instilled seven months of martial law. So back to the playbook. They executed the rioters. Um, they called them rioters. They have controlled the education so that people from China... Don't learn about it. Hong Kong actually has held a vigil because Hong Kong was not under Chinese control back then. Um, they've held a vigil to remember the um, victims of the massacre every year. China actually, for the past two years, has basically tried to make that vigil not happen because they don't want any memory of this Tiananmen Square massacre. And now that Hong Kong is back in China, uh, under Chinese government, um, they're trying to make sure that even in Hong Kong, you can't talk about Tiananmen Square. It's easy to control mm-hmm. in like the 80s or the 90s before the internet. Yeah. 
And now with things like VPNs and whatnot, you can totally get your way to the outside. And so I'll be really curious to see how the next few decades evolves in terms of um, this ability to access information and uh, shape, reshape the messaging and the understanding Mm -hmm. of the history of any given place and the way things are run. It's crazy. It's if like they can, any way that they can control communication, they will. And so just thinking about that, like for people that grow up in the government, I mean, in under this, a lot of them don't have any reason to question the government. They, they think, they believe it, that it's a benevolent government, whatever the government is saying, we will take care of you. We take care of all your needs. It's great living here. Everywhere else sucks. Like they had no reason to, to question that. It's only when they actually peek outside that they realize how much has been edited. And if you're editing out things like killing protesters um, or things like, oh, actually, there are a lot of people that want democracy. Maybe we should consider it. Like if if you can't find other people that think like you, then you're never going to grow your idea into something bigger. It's very, it becomes very important to separate your identity from the government that's in power at the time. Because like we've seen this Mm -hmm. in the past year where anybody with Chinese descent is lumped in with like, um, I I call it, it's called Sinophobia, fear of China, right? Whether it's for the vaccine or for communism, Mm -hmm. it's like somehow just because I am racially Chinese, suddenly you can associate me with the country of origin of COVID-19, or you can accuse me of uh, being a communist or whatever. If if China does anything bad, um, that suddenly it's my fault. Often the government is a small group of people that uh, isn't making decisions based upon the whole population. And then the final example of the playbook being used is Hong Kong. They were outside of the Chinese communist rule until 1997. And so part of the reason that they supported and did vigils for the Tiananmen Square massacre is because they saw it coming that their return to China was coming up soon. And so they were like, we got to honor people who are pro-democracy. Basically, we've had a taste of freedoms and we don't want to let those freedoms go. A taste of not communism. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) basically. What we have seen since 1997 is China having a policy. They call it one country, two systems. Like China considers Hong Kong part of their country, but Hong Kong is governed under a separate judicial and legal system. So they do have freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, but those freedoms are under, under threat. And they already have an expiration date. That expires in 2047. I don't think China's waiting until 2047. They want to take away those freedoms right away because it's very hard to, say, control the narrative if you've got this like rogue territory, Hong Kong, free to like, you know, be, be very open about things that they know from the outside world. Because how can you control the firewall of information if part of your country is like spouting their mouths off about things that you don't want your, the rest of your mainland country to hear about? So Hong Kong people, they know about democracy. They want democracy, um, especially young people. And so they, two years ago in 2019, they organized huge protests 
to basically tell the Chinese government that they do not want to go back and they do not want to be under communist rule. They want to have their own independent government. In 2019, they did these large protests. In America, we saw a lot of evidence of crackdowns that China was doing in order to shut down these protests. But again, the terminology, China labels them as riots. And um, in Hong Kong, they the protesters would want it to be labeled as protests. When Once your government does and is willing to admit that the past was wrong, I think it's it's very interesting to compare and contrast like what 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 should a government do when they say okay sorry the government in the past did that bad thing uh, what do we do about it now so what have you learned about what has Taiwan done since martial law was lifted it's gone through phases it's kind of moved from okay let's just forget the past and move on the downside of that is there's no justice served in that it's just sort of like a all right, stop dwelling on the past. Just like move forward. We'll make sure that our policies are not like that anymore. And then it evolves sort of into peeling away from this Chineseness during martial law, right? Where everybody was made to take on the understanding and the identities and everything of what it means to be a mainland Chinese person. So now this second mm-hmm. stage is okay, well, okay, fine. You know, we should probably build out our own Taiwanese identity and what does it mean Mm -hmm. to be Taiwanese and infiltrate that through our everyday culture and like I said, education, media. And now it's moving towards more, some I'd say blend of the two in Mm -hmm. developing this, they call the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this is called, in this case, it's called Taiwan Transitional Justice Commission. The idea of, yes, we want to move forward with this whole idea of reconciliation and everything. But in order for us to do that, we still have to face up to and own up to the mistakes that have happened in the past. So Winston Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. In order to truly progress and move forward and make change in any context, that you have to understand what has happened in the past. You don't dwell on it, but you learn from it. And you use that understanding to develop your policies and thinking and everything moving forward. So the idea of these Transitional Justice Commission is they're supposed to investigate the actions of the KMT from the past few decades. And it can do things like making political archives more available. So this is like opening up access to information and really helping people to understand what actually has been happening so that we can help to move forward. Acknowledging that these issues that have happened in the past, there's actually a few parks. I mean, you can argue how effective they are. I see this too. Yeah. In like the Tulsa race massacre, they erected a park. It's called the Reconciliation Park. Okay. That says, okay, we as government acknowledge that this happened. Here's our reconciliation. We spent a lot of money on a park. Right. You're like, oh, cool. Thanks. But all right. 
what is that supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, there's a, a, a beautiful 228 park too, right? Yes. It's actually three different parks. There's a 228 Peace Memorial Park. There's a Green Island Human Rights Cultural Park. And there's this White Terror Memorial Park. But the bottom line is they're parks. And then there's also this uh, memorial foundation that is supposed to provide some form of reparations to victims of the 228 uh, massacre. The -hmm. challenge with that, though, just as with any other sort of fund, there's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of ways to that it can be a little bit more difficult to actually pay out or give these reparations that, you know, you can give the like cool PR message of, oh, yeah, we're establishing this fund, we're going to pay back all the victims and this and this and that. But the actuality Mm -hmm. of it can be a little bit more challenging. I mean, first and foremost, you know, how many people that are currently living even know that they are (laughs) victims or their Mm -hmm. families were victims of this? This kind of goes back to the whole erasure of any particular incidents or history, it's like, oh, well, we, we have this fun for you. But, you know, probably however many percentage, I don't know, don't even know that you <laughs> might even qualify yeah. for this because you didn't even know this thing was a thing. And blah, blah. yeah, so and it's not like the government was like taking down names and like, okay, we killed this person and this person and this person. And let's make sure we know who their families are so that we can pay them back later. Like finding the people to give the reparations to would be hard reparations, like paying money to the families who lost people is, I'd say, more healing than a park. Totally. Like, I think park is table stakes, and then Uh, maybe reparations above that. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it is definitely better. Um, It's a matter of how you go about doing it. Like, how effective is it really? Or is it mostly just your, your message? And then here's the other challenge is there are certainly geopolitical sensitivities that have to be taken into consideration when a Mm -hmm. government is trying to come up with what sort of policies and activities should be done and how should they be done so that they're Mm -hmm. not putting themselves as a country in an awkward position. Obviously, there is tension with mainland China Taiwan has to be careful about its actions being seen as anti-China and being seen as steps taken towards further independence from China. And then there's the U.S. involvement in all of this. The U.S. has a complicated relationship with China and Taiwan in towing the frenemies line of heavy reliance on trade with China, while also trying to race China to world domination first place. The bottom line is... Whenever any country has to think about transitional justice, they do have to think about the geopolitical component of it. I'm a very skeptical person, so I tend to look at stuff like transitional justice with my BS detector dialed to like a thousand. I mean, a park is cool and symbolic and all, but what's most important is what are the policies and actions that have been put into place to prevent stuff like this from happening again? I mean, if you're going to say you're going to do something, then do it. I hate it when people say they're going to do something and then they don't follow through, whether it's an individual or an entity. I understand that there is benefit. There is absolutely benefit to having these trends. They should exist, um, mm-hmm. these transitional justice commissions, because without that, you will never make any progress. It's just a matter of mm-hmm. how are these commissions 
run? How are they formed? And Mm -hmm. what are the actual actionable outcomes and progress Mm -hmm. that are being made from the formation of these commissions? It's like at work when you, when there's like some new project or initiative, it's like you can have a cool name to it. You could have a bunch of members as part of this project. You know, somebody like project management managing mm-hmm. the crap out of it. But like sometimes it's like there's no substance to it. Like how much mm-hmm. is actually being done yeah. versus being like a vanity thing of saying you have this right. thing, but like what's the actual output? Yeah. Like when, uh, Corporations are accused of rainbow washing during Gay Pride yeah. Month. Mm-hmm. They like throw up a bunch of rainbows and say they they did great, but then they're actually still treating their LGBTQIA employees or customers or users poorly. Yeah. It's, Can I relate this to yeah. um, parenting? <laughs> we use Daniel Tiger's model a lot <laughs> of how to do a good apology. So there's the apology the acknowledgement of the harm you caused. There's the offer to help fix it right now, like reparations that the government is offering. Um, And there's the promise of what you're going to change about your behavior to prevent it from happening again. So like saying, next time I'll be more careful when I'm walking around you so that I don't trip and hurt you again. Because the person who got hurt they're going to still be worried that you're going to hurt them again. And so they're going to start carrying that trauma around with them that they always have to be feel at risk and their safety is harmed or their safety is at risk because of this one experience you had. So if you don't do that fourth comp- component of how you're going to try to prevent this harm from happening again, then the person is left with a trauma. So what can a government do to try to give assurance that they won't repeat something like this, like suddenly start shooting their citizens or install martial law for 40 years or whatever? That's the thing that is the hardest part Mm -hmm. because governments don't want to, you know, they don't want to really instill and implement policies or certain actions that will be hard for themselves to go back on. It's like they need to build in loopholes for themselves to get out of it later. That is Mm -hmm. the hardest from an individual standpoint for Daniel Tiger and all the children that (laughs) watch him, but, and for as, as adults to do with each other and even Mm -hmm. more so at a governmental citizen level. And, That is Mm -hmm. part of, I think, what makes people so jaded to a lot of Mm -hmm. governments is because it's like, yeah, you're all talk. You know, now the the younger generation of Taiwanese are trying to prevent these activities and this history from being erased. The citizens will continue to hold the government accountable to not repeat this again. If you can erase it, you will not be held accountable for it. If you can't erase it because your citizens are constantly on top of it, you will constantly be asked and pushed to address it. 
that's a fantastic point to close on because it's it's really let's not put all of the weight for the government to do everything. It's something that we as individuals can do. And I think that's a lot of why we're doing this podcast is that we as individuals can help make sure it won't happen again by committing to remembering, retelling, and holding our governments accountable when they try to get out of it. I think that fourth piece, that that giving the people who are harmed some assurance that it won't happen again, it's not necessarily the government that can promise that, but it is in the people um, to say we are, we are committed to not letting that happen again. That's very meaningful and that's very effective. And that's something that each of us individuals can take away and feel empowered to do something about it. So thanks for hanging with us on a lot of history that we just shared. We recognize that this is not the whole story and we totally expect to learn more. One thing that we have been given is a lot of really great recommendations of books to read and papers and articles. And if you have any recommendations for us, please share. So you've heard a lot from us and now we want to hear from you. So we want to hear more voices about current Taiwanese identity, and we want to be able to feature your voices on a future episode. So we invite you to send us a voice message by answering the question, how do you define Taiwanese identity? And do you identify as Taiwanese yourself? And why? You can check out our Instagram and Facebook posts on how to do that. Or you can go to heartsintaiwan.com slash voicemail and leave us a voice message there. And we have really great Hearts in Taiwan logo stickers of the Meihua design. So if you send us a voice message, we will mail you a sticker. And um, we're really looking forward to hearing your voices and discussing Taiwanese identity with you. The music you hear at the beginning of the episode is Making the Band by Alan Z. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for Ronnie's outro featuring Ronnie Chang and Close to Home by Vienna Tang. If you enjoyed this, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference for us and will encourage us to make more. You can follow and DM us on Instagram or Facebook at Hearts in Taiwan or contact us through our website, heartsintaiwan.com. Come back next week for our next episode. Until then, follow your curiosity and follow your heart. So what can we do? What can we do? The only thing you can do is get involved and get involved in the daily grind of helping people and creating change. I think in America, too often we think of solutions as having to be home run, big ticket items. We want the app that solves everything with one button press or the GoFundMe, where if we raise enough money, we stop racism. But that doesn't happen. That's not how change works. That's not how society works. It takes everyone working every day to help people and to create a future that you want. Don't lose hope. There's more good people than bad people. And raise your life a new dawn Tired of yourself Never have you felt so close to home